2: Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One.
1: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to be with you for this episode. My guest is Chris Herring, senior NBA writer for Five Thirty Eight. and we talk for an hour and a half, it's a long conversation, about a lot of different topics. Start with the Rockets, he just has a new piece at 538 talking about their three-point shooting, go through some of the other stuff that he's written, the contenders for the Warriors, some of the other just B- Bane storylines. I mean, I think it's a, a fun, different conversation in terms of also we talk about the mistakes that we made over the offseason and predictions and everything like that. And the episode is brought to you by Simple Contacts. You can go to simplecontacts.com slash Real Gm or you can enter the Real Gem promo code for thirty dollars off your lenses. It's a great way to renew your lenses that's effective it's cheap and it's reliable it's, it's amazing I, i've been very impressed with it so again simplecontacts.com slash real gm conversation as i said an hour and a half and one other note we recorded on friday before the games so it's pretty recent it's actually tighter timeline than i usually do but it does not address the demarcus cousins injury of course because that happened after the, after we did it so unfortunately we couldn't cover that but i think you'll really enjoy it and here it goes thanks so much for coming on no problem at all, man. Thanks for having me. We might as well start. You So we're recording this on Friday afternoon, and you just had a piece drop on the Houston Rockets on an issue that I've been interested in a long time, which is basically the advantages and just the sheer numbers of them shooting three-pointers from significantly beyond the three-point line.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it's something that I I know they've done a little bit of starting last year. I I looked at the numbers from a percentage basis. I didn't actually include this in the story, but just in terms of what percentage of their above the break threes come from a good five, six feet behind the line. And as of a couple years ago, it was was really low. I think they were right in the middle of the league, even though they obviously took a ton of threes, they weren't really any different than any other other team in the league in terms of where their threes were coming from. Last year, they went from, I think, 13th in the league to second right behind Golden State. And then this year, uh, I mean, they're way out in front of everybody. And they're kind of basically doubling their number from last year uh, in terms of percentage basis. So they're not shy at all about it and kind of talking to them in the locker room about it like I did in Dallas on Wednesday. um, They realize now just how much of a weapon it can be. And even if they're not really looking to shoot or don't want to shoot, they know that standing out near the hash mark, which I think is 28 feet from the basket, just that, you know, there are certain teams that if they haven't really gone over it thoroughly in terms of the game plan, that if they they see Ryan Anderson, they're just going to stay with him, even though it might make more sense to just stay toward the, you know, toward the lane. And when you look at the numbers on it, I mean, they're not shooting particularly well. From there, I mean, it's not awful uh, because it's so much further away. It's to be expected that they wouldn't shoot, you know, 50, 60% from there, but they're shooting less than 30%, I think somewhere like 29.8% from anywhere from 28 to 35 feet. And so uh, when you play the numbers game there, you you would think that you just kind of give them a little bit of space. But Ryan Anderson basically told me it's it's almost like a free throw for me because it's probably the cleanest look I'm going to get in the game other than a free throw. It's shooting that far away. And so it creates a lot of space for their guards. And they've got, you know, two of the best three, four point guards in the league, maybe five point guards in the league on that one team. And, you know, leading the league in ISOs, leading the league in ISO efficiency, incredibly good in pick and roll. And just so much space that they create by having Eric Gordon, Ryan Anderson, sometimes James Harden even playing way, way out. 35 feet from the basket and trusting that guys will follow them out
1: there. There are a lot of benefits to it. One way that I've tried to define basketball is through the idea that an offense more than the defense, but both ways, they're trying to make the other team, the opposition, have as bad of choices as possible. And so what having those guys space out does is it just puts this psychological pressure on the other team because it's not like if you put Andre Robertson out there and the other team just says, we don't care. It's the exact opposite of that, where whether or not they... It's actually, you know, those shots go in as long as they go in enough that people are cognizant of it and feel like they should be out there, then they will be out there a little bit more. And then that gets into the idea also of reputational effects. And Eric Gordon and and Ryan Anderson, in particular, justifiably have reputations as guys who can take and make those shots. So defenders are going to be out there. And in certain circumstances, in a lot of circumstances, opposition treats those players as one like that as being like that defender's primary responsibility, which means that they can't be somewhere else
2: yeah that's the funny thing about it is how much of this is based on reputation i i I tend to think that anybody that's a good three-point shooter would get that sort of respect but not every good three-point shooter who can hit a shot from 24 feet can all of a sudden stretch out to 31. And, you know, I, I talked to Mike Antonio about it, and he was saying, look, you know, when I took this job, I watched these guys warm up in practice every day during games, and sometimes it was just kind of more for fun, and sometimes it's just, you know, to try to sharpen a skill to try to shoot from that far away, not if it's an end-of-quarter shot or something like that, but basically talked to some of these guys and said, look, you know, if you if you're comfortable shooting that here, Um, why not shoot that in the game? And even he was actually pretty surprised when I told him what they shoot on those. And he, he kind of cringed when I told him that they're under 30% from that far away um, because he said, look, like we still care quite a bit about our efficiency. And so if it's getting any lower than that, then I might tell guys to try to rein it in just a little bit, tend to disagree with them on that. I, I think if teams haven't really caught up to how, Poorly, they shoot from out there. Then, by all means, continue to do it. Uh, you know, there's no shortage of clips to to just watch James Harden use defenders as traffic cones, basically, and obviously Chris Paul as well, and Clint Capella just getting endless lobs because of a, the result of the way that teams defend this and, and feel the need to defend this. I watched Harrison Barnes follow Ryan Anders out to 30, 32 feet in this game on Wednesday. And I mean, and the other thing is that with the Rockets, the way they score, they hit 10 threes in the first quarter of that game that I was watching in Dallas. And so, I mean, that probably has an influence too, even if they're just hitting threes from the corners, Rick Carlisle tells his guys to start playing way up on these guys after a while. And taking that shot away from them, you know, you're probably going to do, by extension of what he said, you're probably going to go out and defend them out further than you should, even out above the, the top of the break, which is a lot different than a corner three, which is where they're doing damage. But it's the, the perception part of it is fascinating. Um, you know, the Warriors... That's been true of as well. But, you know, I I think those guys have kind of earned it a little bit more with regards to Steph and guys that are going to take you off the dribble and and fire away from that far away. Um, The Rockets guys, um, you know, I might take my chances with them if they're going to shoot from that far away. Gordon, you know, was slumping really bad. and missed 16 threes in a row. Uh, Make them prove it a little bit. Uh, I think you can live with certain guys beating you especially if they're trying to beat you from thirty-five feet away.
1: That same concept also applies to something else that we've been seeing around the league the last couple of years, which is more aggressive closeouts. So kind of those are the two choices you can make if you respect these shooters, is either you can be there the whole time, and so that means you're out of the play, or you can try to help a little bit more, and then you're closing out. And aggressive closeouts lead to two big problems. One is you can just run into the dude, and then that's a foul, and I think guys have gotten better at that. And some, like Kevin Love, are even innovating and... Moving out of their normal shooting motion to draw those fouls, even when the guys do the do the flyby, and then the second is the idea that you close out too hard, and instead of fouling the player, you open up another shot because maybe they can take a dribble and get by you. The one, the phrase that I've often used is two dribbles and a good decision, like that sort of thing. And so there is no perfect solution to this, which is, I mean, in, in many ways, the, the best solution for the right guys is just letting them shoot in certain circumstances. But it's fun because teams are figuring out the right ways to do this and sussing it out and realizing that it's not necessarily the same thing against different opponents. And it's another one of those kind of ebb and flow things as the league is changing into more of a perimeter game.
2: Yeah, that honestly, I I kind of ask, I, I, I get in this mode where I start reporting and I, I kind of, start at a place where I ask for the moon and the stars from the statisticians I'm working with. I asked for more than I actually was able to use in the story. Um, there's one really cool stat that I remember. Um, I worked on something last season and I wanted to try to move statistically. I mean, we obviously knew it, but the, you remember the, the crazy rotations that Frank Vogel was running out and trying to play basically three bigs with the magic at a time and trying to play Aaron Gordon at small forward instead of playing him up, not even up a position, but just more natural position at the four, maybe even the five. And basically that that was taking a toll on Aaron Gordon's ability to dunk. And because he was playing with guys that couldn't shoot. And so the lane was clogged constantly. And so I asked some statisticians I was working with, you know, how I could get at that, you know, through advanced numbers and trying to, you know, highlight some of that. Obviously I can tell how much less often he's dunking, but I want to kind of be able to say definitively why, Even though I have a hunch as to why. And they were able to get numbers to me. Now they didn't really actually highlight what I thought they would, but numbers on how many players are in the paint or on average when he is trying to take a shot in the paint, from the paint. And I was like, that's a really cool number. But, you know, there's all sorts of capabilities now. So I I remember asking about that sort of thing with regards to this story with, you know, as it related to Clint Capella and showing how easy his shots were this year. But I I also was thinking about, you know, closeout statistics and how aggressively our teams trying to close out. The Rockets, I guess, on the one hand, I could see them trying to close out very aggressively. On the other, what you just said, I mean, the Rockets obviously drew way more three-point shooting fouls than any team in the league. You know, I wrote last year at one point. Um, and he ended the season this way as well. James Harden had drawn more fouls by himself than any team had throughout the entire league, which is still amazing, amazing statistic. Um, And so you can't close out on them too, too aggressively. But also because of how far out they're playing beyond the perimeter, you probably can't get to them anyway, unless you're playing right on top of them to begin with. Uh, Trying to close out aggressively doesn't really work if you're, you know, 18 feet away from somebody. So that was another thing. And then, you know, the, the closest I got to that, because basically I was told that they're kind of cooking up a statistic like that. In View, they kind of have one, but it's not completely done and ready yet uh, on how aggressive the closeouts are. Um, And so what I was able to get, I basically said, well, can you get me, you know, we know how fast players and teams move on offense and defense. Would there be a way of you telling me how fast teams that are playing against the Rockets, how fast they move defensively? And if that is any faster or slower than what we see from other teams in the league. And so they did look that up and they basically said on average that the Rockets, the defenses that play against the Rockets move at the seventh slowest speed in the league. And, you know, Isolations. on some level, it was kind of surprising to me. But then I thought about the ISOs and, and basically, and even, you know, ISOs, pick and roll, even with stuff that requires some sense of movement on defense. And, and obviously the ISO more than anybody in the league, more successful at than anybody in the league. They freeze teams in a way that's different than a lot of other clubs because you can't really leave their shooters and it kind of leave you leaves you in a no man's land. So it's fascinating to kind of think about what this team, I actually feel like the numbers spelled out very well, what makes this team so interesting from an offensive standpoint and what they do to defense. They kind of paralyze you because you're afraid to obviously help off of a shooter, but you obviously don't. You know, you don't want to play too far up on the shooter either because if you do that, then there's no way for you to get back and try to help somebody against James Harden or Chris Paul. Or or frankly, at times, even Eric Gordon has has been really good off the dribble um, this season and is playing really well at the rim.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have a lot of that stuff running together and it's it's fascinating with the Rockets something that I think Nate's done a really good job of articulating before is that the definitive element of defending the Rockets is whether you can effectively stop a Harden big or now CP big pick and roll with just two guys because if you can do that then it stymies a lot of what they want though now with ISOs they could there are a couple other wrinkles and of course having two of them as opposed to just just James Harden is is a game changer but the reason why you have to think about it in that way, as opposed to other teams is because helping means something very different against them than it does. And the other thing that I was thinking about was uh, in re- in response to your piece, Dean Oliver, who is just a giant in, in basketball statistics, yeah. talked about how his research has shown that the secondary benefits of above the break threes are more significant than the benefits you get from a couple percentage points in the corners because the corners are closer and the function of help is very different than above the break threes, which I think ties in with with a lot of this stuff, too.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. At the, at the top of the the break, I mean, there's really just that part of the floor. You're, you're kind of, again, paralyzed in the sense that it's really hard to bring help there. Um, I mean, you and frankly, I mean, let's say you do close out really aggressively in the corner. Depending on which way you angle your body as a defender, you can kind of double-team someone without actually having to have a second person there. You force them toward the baseline. I mean, the good defenders do that. It's hard to do in a closeout situation, but, uh, I mean, it's definitely doable. And, and frankly, I mean, if we're going to be honest, I actually had parts of the piece that we cut out for length purposes. But the Rockets finally have a couple guys. You know, I feel like for years the perception was that Trevor Ariza was doing so much of this by himself as a wing defender there and trying to kind of prop up and hold up the, the Rockets' defense by himself as a wing defender, they've got a couple guys now aside from him that, uh, that know what they're doing. Uh, obviously they, they really struggled with Luke Mamute, um when he was out with injury, but PJ Tucker is obviously a good defender. Chris Paul, um, you know, his reputation is, is well established throughout the league in terms of what sort of defender he is. Both as kind of a skills artist, but even on the ball, he's very good. And so, I mean, this, this defense is is really smart all of a sudden too, and they are the sort of team It'd be interesting to watch the Rockets try to defend, you know, a Rocket's offense. And certain guys would probably handle the task well, it'd be very difficult, but it'd be really interesting to watch James Harden with that much space trying to navigate, you know, who he's gonna defend, who he's gonna pick up and where. But, yeah, um, it's, it's really a fascinating team.
1: He'd get lost all over the place on weird guys. It'd be fun. Yeah, I, I wrote a piece for The Athletic, I think <laughs> it was about a week ago, shortly after the Rockets game, though I could have written the same piece beforehand because it didn't change the way I felt, about how the Rockets, to me, are the most dangerous team against the Warriors, like to the Warriors' chances of winning a title in a seven-game series. And the, the thesis was the way that you beat the Warriors, other than through injuries, which of course is a part of this, is by having an unstoppable or functionally unstoppable Strength And also not having an easily exploitable weakness. And so the more intuitive way to do this is the way that the Rockets have, which is being really great offensively and then just not being terrible defensively. And something that gets lost in the shuffle here is that Cleveland scored pretty reliably against the Warriors. In the 2017 finals, it was just that they couldn't stop them at all. And that is why. Oh, absolutely. And, and that's why Cleveland people should be a little bit more concerned. I mean, obviously, there, there are other things to talk that we could talk about the Caps, and I'd like to later. But that's what the Rockets can do, is they can t- score well enough that even a good defense will have some trouble with it. Maybe I think they'll be better in the playoff settings and all that, that the opposing defenses will and with tactics and adjustments and all that. But the Rockets are good enough defensively where they give themselves a chance. So they're, they're not fighting, you know, it's not, they they can win a game 105 to 100. It doesn't have, they don't have to go to 120 to win, but they can.
2: No, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the difference here is that, uh, I mean, they've been beating the drum now for a while on three-point shooting and Basically, I mean, they haven't come right out and said this, but let's face it, most teams would have no shot whatsoever at knocking off the Warriors in a playoff series. I mean, that dynamic skyrocketed even more and took off even more when they signed Kevin Durant. You know, I think the Rockets were pretty honest with themselves about the fact that they were a pretty big long shot, but that they basically said, look, we have some supreme talent here. We have James Harden, got good role players around him. But let's be honest, we, we would need to get extremely, extremely hot from three. And that's, you know, you talk about the variance with regards to three-point shooting. It could theoretically happen. But I think we were looking at that as a totally best-case scenario last year. You know, it would have required a lot of luck. Uh, might have required an injury on the other side of the floor. Now, I, I think you're looking at, I mean, they still would not be favored. Uh, but they obviously we have seen them play three times now. And they've won two of those games. And you you see how it could happen. I don't think it would require nearly as much luck now, probably a little bit. But, you know, I, I was having this conversation with someone a week or so ago, and they were basically saying, look, I mean, at this point, you could see them playing a seven-game series. I could see the Rockets easily getting a game or two off of them. No, no questions asked. I think they could win at least one. Probably two if they're playing to their capacity series in the course of a playoff series. You might have one wild swing game where something weird happens, and all of a sudden, if you get to three, I mean, it's, it's kind of any obviously, it's anybody's game at that point. If, if both teams can get to three wins, you got to give seven. So it's interesting. You, you can't realistically beat this team without some defense. I mean, Cleveland last year in the finals was probably the best. Version of that that we saw is that, you know they had no problem scoring. What was it that Cleveland scored at least one thirteen in every game, but I think one in the finals last year something, but still only won that one game. And so and it was a game where they just went totally nuts uh, and hit everything. And so if that's what it requires to beat them, you've got to be able to defend. You've got to be able to get some stops because uh, otherwise, I mean, it's, it's not realistic. I mean, it might be for the Rockets, but I mean, especially with the way Cleveland looks right now, I mean, you would have to be scoring 150 points to have a realistic chance of winning a game against them based on how their defense looks. And that's not going to happen. If you had all these guys in their prime, you know, Derek Rose and everybody else in their prime and Isaiah Thomas, I don't, I don't think that would happen, let alone right now with how they look. So I, I mean, at this and that was actually how I led my story today about the Rockets was basically saying like, at this point, is it even really close? Are we even close to having a team that matches up as well or better than the Rockets do with golden state? I don't, I really don't think there is. I mean, Oklahoma city has been playing much better lately. Minnesota has been pretty hot. Cleveland's been garbage for, for the last few weeks, but the Spurs not having Kawhi and not really knowing what the status is there. Uh, you've really only got a handful of teams that even, you know, could be put in that conversation. Uh, you know, maybe some teams make it interesting. You know, the Falcons have a lot of size, but I think at times that might play against them, uh, you know, hurt them, uh, against a team like the Warriors and how fast and how up and down they are. But, but Houston undoubtedly makes it interesting. Uh, I, I don't think that's a team that Golden State would sweep. I think that they would at least make it interesting. Because they they do present, maybe not matchup problems, but they are much more Golden State's equal than they ever were before.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And for me, in the overall Western Conference picture, there are more teams this year than before. Though, of course, injuries were huge last year. That can take a game or two from the Warriors. Like, I don't think they're going to make it through the first two rounds clean this year. Unless they get, you know, key players being hurt, which is a big part of last year with Nurkic being out. And then the jazz just having a bunch of guys get have, have limitations at various points in the series. So that is, you know, that that's more cumulative fatigue, all that kind of stuff. But in terms of teams that, that would have a a good shot at beating them at full strength or close to it. I mean, the Rockets and the Cavs to me are, are the real separators. And Sure, you could make an argument that a couple other teams can. I mean, OKC's defensive ceiling is crazy high. And what I think some people lose sight of is that in a lot of these situations, the limitation is not actually like, can they reliably defend the Warriors? For certain teams, it's the other side, which is, can they reliably score against them? And that's my concern with OKC. That's my concern with the Celtics who get talked about, bandied about sometimes with this, and the Spurs too, is I don't think those teams can score enough to beat the Warriors four times out of seven.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just really tough at this point. I mean, the Spurs, you'd like to see Kawhi play a, a long string of games healthy. I mean, we watched what happened with the, that offense without I mean, Aldridge, that was one of the uglier series I've seen for from a top guy. Once Kawhi went down, I mean, I guess he was asked to play a different role once Kawhi went down than what he played the whole season, but he just He couldn't handle double teams in that series. You know, I think about a team like Oklahoma City, I could see that getting really ugly. First of all, you know, I I love that defense. Um, You know, I actually made a prediction at the beginning of the season that I thought that Oklahoma City was the better of the two teams that had really reloaded. Obviously, they did. and Houston did. And I thought that Oklahoma City kind of, on from a functional standpoint, looked better. On paper, um, you know, I think I assume that Mello would kind of adopt the Olympic Mello stuff earlier, uh, as opposed to kind of having been talked into that or for them having to lose to kind of adopt that style of play. I think it took Russell Westbrook a long time to kind of be the alpha dog that he is, you know, given that that's his team. Paul George has had a pretty strong season and he's been really good on defense, but that was why I thought they'd be so good. Most people looked at them offensively and said they're going to be fantastic. I actually thought that they would be, I actually went as far as to say that I thought they could be the best defense in the league before the season started. And I don't know that people saw that happening, but it's pretty rare to find a a wing tandem of of Robertson and, and George, um, that age, that sort of length that sort of ability on the ball and having two of them out there at the same time. But all of that said, I mean, if there's a team that can really, really hurt you because of someone not being able to create his own shot or not being able to score or really, I mean, it goes beyond that with Robertson. It's more like he's afraid to shoot. That's a team that will just eat you alive if you're playing four on five. And, uh, and I mean, aside from the fact that sometimes you don't really have to do much to force Oklahoma city into a bad shot. Um, you know, they, they press at times and it just looks really bad. Carmelo decides that he wants to force a shot up. And I've been better with this lately where he hasn't done that, but he decides he wants to get a shot up. And all of a sudden, it's not even so much about what Golden State is doing defensively as much as it's about I'm Carmelo Anthony I haven't had a shot in a while (laughs) and that's that's when Oklahoma City gets themselves into trouble they've gotten so much better about that lately Uh, you know but there are always going to be issues and times where uh, Russell Westbrook just kind of muscles up a shot particularly from three point range which is not the best look they can get so I they they obviously can't be totally counted out. I mean, especially because they've played so much better lately. I think they're like a full seven or eight games above 500, which is a really good spot from from where they were just even a month ago. But but yeah, I mean, Golden State's defense. I, I watched that. once a couple games of that Utah series? And uh, granted, they had guys out in that series. Um, George Hill missed, I think, that entire series, if not maybe one game he played. But just how difficult it was for them to score throughout that series. They actually were pretty decent defending Golden State, but that, like you said, that's really not the problem all the time. Golden State is going to go cold. You know, one guy, Clay Thompson, was cold for the majority of the playoffs last year. So you can actually make them look like, you know, normal human beings on, from their offensive standpoint, but, but they can decide to clamp down. And, uh, you know, I think their death lineup will probably perform a little bit better than it has so far this season once they get up and running and everyone's totally healthy and able to play every game, but it's hard to score on that team. It always has been and probably always
0: will be.
1: OKC is hard because they have this crazy high ceiling. I mean, you think about what they can be, especially defensively. But the other game that always I'm going to fall back on this entire season is the Indiana game. And so at the end of that Indiana game, Nate McMillan, to his immense credit, basically ran at. Carmelo Anthony every single play and Victor Oladipo was just running downhill all the time and that's the part that I I actually to a certain extent liked the Thunder better before they got Carmelo just because he's such a hard player to use perfectly something that you know better than almost anybody yeah. and I didn't have faith And I still don't have faith that any coach, Billy Donovan, not being any better or worse than any other would have the ability to say, "Okay, this is where we need to use you and this is where you're not being helpful. And then the other part of that is my expectation was that Patrick Patterson was going to look more like what I think Patrick Patterson is rather than a more limited guy. He has been better than the first six weeks of the season when he really did look hampered by this knee injury. But he still, even at this point, isn't what I hoped he would be, especially defensively. But offensively, you know, he's had—he, it's been more his moments rather than consistent.
2: Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, Carmelo, I think at this point, the fact that <laughs> – you know, the, the moment that Fred Katz, bless his heart, you know, kind of the who me reference with Carmelo um, in, in preseason where uh, he was asked at training camp, he'd given thought to the idea of being a sixth man and just kind of started laughing and, you know, made a joke out of it because he's like, who me? How would I come off the bench? In what world would I come off the bench I mean, it tells you about these guys' mindsets, and and, and frankly, all the kind of backroom dealing that happens with these sorts of trades, these guys are guaranteed. I mean, it's almost like free agency to some extent, especially when you have a no-trade clause. I mean, you have power over where you're going, or at least where you're not going. So in that case, he was probably promised anything and everything with regards to what his role would be, just to try to get him to convince him to, to go ahead and opt into that sort of deal being made. but he yeah it it took him longer than it should have to kind of accept the idea of being more of a catch and shoot guy i mean you have two guys that are in their prime that are young they can get maybe not any shot they want but you know if you give them long enough they probably can but they can use the version of Melo that we've seen who is just devastating from almost anywhere on the court if he's catching and shooting but when he's holding and surveying the floor and trying to figure out where the second defender is going to be in terms of the help defender. And he's doing that, and he's jab-stepping. Like, that's just not useful to them. And it, it does raise a question. I mean, Patrick Patterson, they couldn't be more different in terms of what they bring to the table. You know, I had some faith that Mello would work out really well for Oklahoma City because of the fact that, you know, playing the four position I thought would be good for him and having so much of the burden take off, taken off of him from having to chase people, which he hates doing that. Uh, he hates playing in the post uh defensively but he hates chasing people uh around screens and what have you just kind of won't do it and so it's kind of that you know that awkward tweener thing where he's very good at the four on offense he can be very very good on defense there and he's had his moments where he's looked good defensively but uh but yeah i mean there's certain things that patrick patterson does much better than he does and i think that finding a fit for patrick patterson probably would have been easier if Mello weren't in the picture but uh but it's it's hard to say. I, I'm not really sure where he'd fit perfectly at this point. It's not a perfect fit there. I think it's worked out much better. And he has some certain games where it's like you still see the value of what he brings. But you know, it it, it 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 was tough for them, and it, it made total sense why they were so bad at the beginning of the season. Everybody was awful, and Patterson might have been really the worst of that group for a while. The all shooting career lows, and, and Patterson just looking out of place, and like you said, taking a while to really get going with his injury. But but at least everybody looks like they've gotten past that that initial rough patch and you know they're they're starting to play more to their potential uh it'll be really interesting to see where they finish uh as far as seeding those to see who they they draw in the push on.
1: i don't know if your statisticians could do it but if anybody or anybody listening to this podcast i would be fascinated to find out numbers on every team's first shot offense and defense and I effective field goal percentage true shooting whatever you want to go with that because Oklahoma City this year they're 19th in half court points per play Despite being, I mean, they're one of the best offensive rebounding teams in the league. Surprise, surprise, they have Steven Adams, who's an absolute monster there. And I wonder about that element of it, just because, A, if you're relying a lot on second chance points, teams are going to care more about defensive rebounds in the playoffs. I mean, Steven Adams is still going to get a bushel of them because he's amazing at it, but... Teams right now are in a different place, you know. It'll be it'll you know, and they and the comparative advantage, I think, is going to tone down. And then, if your first shot defense or offense, you know, if, if you have a weakness there, then it's harder to, to reconcile. And I'm not saying OKC okay, in particular is here. I, I just think it's something interesting that I would love to dig to, to into further. And. One more step before we move on to a very different topic, because we, we before we were talking about the Aaron Gordon thing, I, I wanted to bring this up just because I find it interesting. Last night I was looking at Asdrú Wiggins. The Warriors beat the beat Minnesota last night, and for the season. Andrew Wiggins has taken 182 shots at the rim and 180 shots that would be classified as deep twos. And I saw that it
2: was unbelievable.
1: Like (laughs) an element of that is so there are there are two different parts of that that are important. And it's funny because Wiggins partisans were going in one direction and the other direction is important, too. So the Wiggins partisans were arguing that, well, he's not getting to the rim as much because there are more guys there. And I think that's completely true. And that is a mitigation. He also has the lowest free throw attempt rate of his career. Some of that is because he's Taking more, he's taking a lot of shots. Some of that's just he's getting to the line way less, and the other part is that may be true, but that doesn't mean he has to take as many long twos as he has because he's terrible at it. He's shooting like thirty-five percent on long twos, and so you're sitting there going, "Okay, it's true. Maybe the shots of the room are going down, but." You have wonderful offensive players on your team. Unless it was him and a bunch of, like, backups, those shots could go to somebody else and they would do better.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a really... I was having this conversation with someone a couple of weeks ago. He's had a really rough season, which is interesting because he the way he started the season was really promising. I mean, you know, speaking of Oklahoma City, hit the, the game-winning shot against them from basically, you know, just on the other side of half-court... But I mean, this was going to be an interesting season to begin with. We knew that. The first story I wrote of the whole season and even preseason was about Minnesota and kind of my lack of faith in their ability to figure out who would really be the facilitator of this group because they had a rough season. So I, I, at one point, was basically kind of making an argument in the story for, you know, I'm like, man, you trade Ricky Rubio away and now you have all these scores where you could really use someone that facilitates like that. And quite honestly, I think the closest thing they've found to it, even though Teague has had pretty good year, at least really good moments within this season, Tyus Jones has actually been a really good facilitator for them. And, and I think mostly in the sense that he just doesn't really play you out of games. He, he They've got enough guys that can kind of get the job done for them. He doesn't turn it over. He, he assists very well. He defends much better than someone you'd expect for someone for his size but Wiggins was always going to kind of be in a tougher spot because Crawley Anthony Towns is not really competing with people down low for possessions. Although it did kind of feel like he was last year because Wiggins kind of took over games so much in fourth quarters. But he's a post player, so his touches are going to be a little bit different than wing players. Whereas Butler and Wiggins all of a sudden – kind of replicate a lot of the same traits, not completely, but definitely to a large degree they do in terms of, you know, the sorts of shots they like to take in terms of the quality of shooters that they are uh, in terms of who's touching the ball most in crunch time, especially after the first month or so of the season was over. I remember Zach Lowe had posted a tweet basically pointing out that Jimmy Butler's uh, usage rate was very, very low compared to what we'd seen in Chicago for the first few weeks. And then it just kind of spiked out of nowhere because Jimmy Butler put his foot down and said, okay, enough, we're just going to start winning now. And obviously Thibodeau knows that of him and from him and, and probably wanted him to do that very much in the same way that, uh, these alpha dog players were just talking about Russell Westbrook kind of did that. And all of a sudden how it kind of turned the tide for that team in Oklahoma city, Butler did the same thing in Minnesota and had entire games where that was completely the right decision. It's clearly kind of Comet at Wiggins' expense because he hasn't really figured out how to fit in within that. Uh, and I think it it leads to him kind of jacking shots, shots that he really doesn't need to be taking. But for someone that has been used to scoring 20 points a game, all of a sudden, it's been a year. I, I would probably call it a little bit of a regression. You know, he, he has his up and down moments, but you want to see his shot selection getting better. Not worse. Um, and I, I kind of feel like there's no rhythm to what he's doing a lot of the time because of the fact that he just doesn't really know when it's his turn. And it's, it's not really so much of a your turn, my turn to sort of think thing as it was in Oklahoma City because, again, one of those players in, in Minnesota is a big, and so his touches are fundamentally different than the ones that are being distributed in, this, in a place like Oklahoma city, but it, it, it's looked uncomfortable. And uh, I mean, they, they just signed the huge extension with him, the max extension. So they've got to figure it out. And, you know, Wiggins is still so young. I'm sure he will get a lot of it figured out, but it's been a really rough season for him so far. And, and kind of a, the down note of something that's been a pretty fun season so far. For Minnesota?
1: I did not think of it when I talked about them in sequence, but there is a parallel between late career Mello and current Wiggins, which is that both of them are talented offensive players. That, you know, if you have them as a key option, your offense is going to be at nth level, which is better than some teams are, obviously. But the problem is, it's also worse than Minnesota's other personnel. When you, Carl Anthony Towns is, he might not, I'm not at the point yet where I'll say he's a generational offensive talent, but he's close. Like, that's how good he is for his size. Jimmy Butler is a wonderful offensive player. And so the problem in certain ways with those guys, and then with Melo, it's more the combination of that and his defense, which is complicated. It's just that they make a team better, but they don't really amplify a starting lineup with superior players. And that is really hard to reconcile versus a lot of the other things, especially when one of the things that those guys do is put up a bunch of points. So if somebody's a little bit more casual, they go, oh, they're putting up a bunch of points. That's a good. Thing, but you are looking at how the nature of it. And I mean, Melo this year, his true shooting percentage is the lowest it's been since his rookie year, and his usage is also the lowest it has been in his entire career. And that isn't to say you know a smaller a small variance, a couple hot shooting games will change that around a little bit. But there is that parallel between these two guys. There is still a place for them in the league, but it might just be because of their stature, their contracts, and all that kind of stuff. They can't functionally be put in that role because it's not the way the league works.
2: Exactly. And and that's exactly what I'm getting at with the the makeup of that team. I kind of felt like Thibodeau went a little, and it's not normally what you see from him, but I mean, he, he obviously brought in Butler, who's a good defender. He brought in Taj Gibson, who's a good defender, and guys that he not only are good defenders, but guys that he knows and know his system. But what I was surprised by was just kind of how, with the exception of Gibson maybe, how offense-minded everybody was that was coming in the season all the way down to... A guy like um, Jamal Crawford off, off your bench. And, Aaron Brooks. And bringing in Jeff Teague, Aaron Brooks. And so that was kind of the thing is that these are all guys, that, you know, even though I like Teague and that he is a, a very good, decent passer at times. He's still someone that looks for his shot so much more than Rubio does. And and I get why they wanted to move on from that because there were times where you could fundamentally ignore Rubio in a way that, you know, because he wasn't aggressive enough or wasn't really confident in his ability to finish at the rim. Teague is not that. And Teague obviously can shoot from outside as well, you know, decent enough, decently enough to where you have to defend him. But Teague is looking for his shot. Butler is looking for his shot. Like you said, Carl Anthony Towns might be a generational talent as far as offense goes. He's looking for a shot. Shabazz Muhammad is looking for a shot. Jamal Crawford's looking for a shot. And so it's just kind of like who – And it's it's not – at this point, Wiggins has probably accomplished enough to where – it's not on any one player to really find good looks for him anymore. I mean, this is someone that won rookie of the year that you kind of expect, you know, that you kind of felt like he was in a place in his career, especially if Butler wasn't there, that you'd be thinking, okay, this is his time to kind of figure it out. You know, a lot I think there's, for whatever reason, you talk about years and kind of bunch them in sets of three, but he'd had his third year coming into year four, that he was really going to kind of, that the learning curve was behind him and that he was going to kind of put it together and that if anything, Butler being there would accelerate all of that, or would kind of make the game even easier for him. And I kind of feel like it's been the opposite because no one is really putting him in those positions necessarily. And really, the connection between Butler and Wiggins might be the toughest one to establish as far as getting the ball to him. Because if Butler is in the position he wants to be in on the floor, from the mid-range part of the floor, or what have you? Guess what? Then he's kind of displacing where where Wiggins might be most comfortable or might have been most comfortable before, and so. It's just nothing really looks totally natural for him. And I think the number that you you pulled out and as far as the shots at the rim versus mid-range attempts is totally indicative of that.
1: Before the off season, I mean, for Dunk On, we do the mock-off season, and I do all my previews, I had been very, very in on the idea of them getting Drew Holiday. I thought that he was a really good natural fit with Wiggins and Towns, and it partially just ended up being bad fortune for them that the Pelicans offered more money than they could reasonably offer. Drew has been very good for the Pelicans, and I'm happy for New Orleans that, that contract is living up, but you think about kind of his approach and mentality, and yes, Drew Holiday is taking more shots per 36 minutes than Teague is this year, but just their mentalities are different, and the way that they look at it also, I believe that Drew's a much better defender, and that sort of thing happens, you know, it's nothing's ever going to be perfect, and I think you're right in terms of the articulation of, of what, what's up with his team, it's also that a lot of the players that Minnesota got, their primary, or in certain cases, exclusive value is their ability to get their own shot, so it's not like, oh, well, they can do that and they can do so many other things. It's that's what they do. And so like Jamal Crawford, <laughs> wonderful player, but that's what he does. He's going to, you know, he'll have his defensive foibles and he's he's a good teammate. He will pass the ball if other guys are open. But you get Jamal Crawford because you need that person who can transform your second year offense. It's the same idea with Lou Williams and all those type of guys. There are weaknesses that come with that. So you just you you need to know what you're getting into. And they acquired those guys without realizing Hey, we don't we don't need those guys. We need the support players to make our to make our actual good offensive players do that without compromising our defense. And that's Taj Gibson, I think, did that to certain extents. I mean, he also doesn't amplify it because he doesn't space the floor and you think about like when they play B elites at the four, or the other things they can do and Jang is the same issue. I mean, he is shooting some from yep. the perimeter now, but that's again, back to the idea of respect and all that kind of stuff. So, with Minnesota, what's so crazy about the way their offseason went is it's like if you heard for whatever reason, like if if the way this went was they maxed out Wiggins and then they traded for Jimmy Butler, I would have been like, "Oh, you know, that's unfortunate." And I wouldn't have I wouldn't have maxed out Wiggins anyway at that point just because they had the ability to re-sign him and it wasn't an issue. But doing it in the order they did, it's like, "Well, wouldn't you Want to see how Wiggins plays with Jimmy Butler before you decide to commit yeah. to this money to him. And like it, it to me, good organizations are full of making tough decisions. And that could be in the Warriors case, asking Draymond Green and Clay Thompson to take less than their maximum. Or, you know, the tough negotiation with Steph Curry. In Daryl Morey's case, that can be cutting loose. Kyle Lowry, that could be a a million not overpaying guys zealously. Danny Ainge deserves a ton of credit for this, too. Like, hard decisions are an incredibly important part of almost every successful NBA team. And that decision in particular didn't strike me. And it's always an ownership call. I'm not blaming Tibbs for this one. That it wasn't the move that you need to make if you really want to be a championship team.
2: Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a really fair argument to be made with a lot of that, especially... I mean, you got to play hardball sometimes. And, and really what was so interesting, I was at their media day and it was so awkward because the reporters were trying eight different ways to try to get Andrew Wiggins to articulate. I mean, I don't know how much your listeners kind of know the background of it, that he basically of his agent and decided that he was going to he wasn't going to hire one. And so he had a max offer on the table And then the max offer just sat there for weeks and weeks and weeks. And, you know, during media day, it still hadn't been signed, which, you know, at that point, it is a lot of a risk to just go to training camp and to start playing in the preseason and not have signed your contract yet. And so, you know, he was like, well, I've never been hurt before, so, like, I'm not worried about that. And it's like, so if you don't have an agent, like, what are you, what are you really what, like? And if they're offering you the max and you don't have an agent, like, what are you hoping that will change about the deal that you really need to go over? But it, to me, in hindsight, I kind of look at that and I'm like, man, he was not necessarily giving you an out to not give him that deal. But I mean, you could have potentially pulled it back and said, well, we, we want to rethink this. Not that that would have happened at that stage. Like you said, especially in hindsight, but maybe even at the time. Like you're bringing in a guy that basically can do everything that Wiggins does. Granted, Wiggins is younger. Granted, he, you know, in the long run, he might be on a better timeline as far as Towns, who, you know, I think will probably be the best of those three players. Potentially, have the best career of those three players when it when all is said and done in terms of where he ends up among the greats at his position because of, like you said, being a generational talent potentially. So Butler doesn't fit that timeline as well as Wiggins does because those two are closer in age. But, yeah, I mean, it's a totally fair question that you could have asked at the time because you didn't know how he would react to this. And basically because of what we were just saying before, you've got so many guys that are kind of out for themselves offensively. And, I mean, they they score just fine. That's not really – a problem. It will be interesting to watch during the playoffs, but no. Like I said, no one's really watching out for Wiggins, and, and he has enough offensive talent to where you kind of expect him to be able to do enough for himself to fend for himself offensively. But when he's struggling, you know, and he's still not a great defender, even though he's defending guys uh lesser caliber guys now that Jimmy Butler is there. You know, you just want to get a good sense of what he's great at or what he will be great at. Uh, you don't want to take for granted that someone can score 20 points a game, but uh, but it's different doing it uh, in a situation where, you know, the team has no real firm expectations on it versus when it counts. And, you know, being able to do it in a playoff series, being able to do it when a defense really keys in on you, if Butler's out for a game or two. So we'll see. It's going to be really interesting because that is a, a huge amount of money that they gave them. And not just so much that, but you know, Bobby Mark's referring to how much they were spending um, I mean this team went from being, you know, all of a sudden thirteen year playoff draft to all of a sudden like they can't really do a whole lot to improve this roster for a while. I mean, this is kind of gonna be their team, you know, unless they do move somebody uh, significant because they you know, they have so much money locked up in Wiggins. They will have so much money locked up in towns. Butler is gonna be due for a new contract pretty soon, assuming that they wanna keep him. I mean, T did not come cheap and so it's 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 kind of their team is At some point, the luxury tax conversation is going to be there all of a sudden for a team that had missed the playoffs for almost 15 years in a row. It's pretty incredible to think about.
1: And I hope that isn't what really curtails them, but I I would assume it's going to be a factor in their decision-making moving forward. Before we move on, I want to take a little bit of time to tell you about Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts is a convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription, reorder your brand contacts from anywhere in minutes. And I've experienced the process a little bit more directly than I did before because I was able to go through their whole vision test. I have required vision correction since the fourth grade. I've been through a lot of eye tests and the convenience of doing it at home. I used my computer, but you can also do it using your phone, which is very, very cool there's a redness test, there's a vision test, and they're very thorough with it. The first time I did it, actually, I was they say you have to be a certain distance away. I was too close. They caught that. They realized that I was too close. It wasn't even like, it it was within a reasonable margin. It wasn't even like, oh, I was two feet away and you're supposed to be way farther than that. It was impressive that they had that kind of diligence. And they put that thought into really everything. I mean, it's incredibly convenient. The test itself takes less than five minutes, was significantly less than that for me, other than having to redo that part of it. And the test is designed by doctors, licensed ophthalmologists review every test. have the brands of lenses that you're familiar with. They have great customer support, as I dealt with. And the vision test is only $20. So beyond the convenience of it, the cost is way, way better. So you should definitely check it out. And something I really like about our promotion with them is that there's both a URL and a promo code. Sometimes people get confused. And so you can go to simplecontacts.com slash real GM, or you can just enter the real GM promo code. Or if you want to be super fun, you can do both. I 99.999% sure you don't get any additional benefit, but just to make sure. And the benefit that you do get is off on your lenses. So again, you go to simplecontacts.com slash real GM, or you just enter the real GM promo code, give it a try, see everything that they have. I was really blown away by all the options that they have. And for people that have been dealing with contacts for for a long time, just to have it all in one place that's so simple is is great. And again, simplecontacts.com slash real GM or the real GM promo code. Now back to the show. Do you have a few minutes to talk about the Cavs? Yeah. The single most important part of this to me is not that the Cavs have struggled to defend or anything like that. It is that other than arguably the Warriors, and it's arguable because LeBron is an entirely different thing, no team is more aware of... Of the difference between January and April, May, June than the Cleveland Cavaliers. And the fact that it certainly sounds like from the abundance of reporting, which is also weird, about this, is that they're freaking out. And that to me is the story here. It is not Cleveland being having trouble and all of us being asked by our editors to write the What's Wrong with Cleveland column. It's players-only meetings. It's hearing these the the blame game going around. And that's what's shocking to me about this, because I expected something like this to happen happen over the course of the season because it, it does but not for it to affect the players the way that it appears that it is and management to a point
2: yeah i mean it, it's just there's a lot that's missing there and it, it, it's such a new team and i i think when you think about why this seems to be kind of unraveling the way it is uh and the defense i mean you don't want to downplay that because i mean i i think we've learned our lesson as uh, as people that use numbers, you know watch plenty of film, uh, take trends to be meaningful or not meaningful uh, we've learned our lesson pretty quickly and aggressively with regards to Cleveland and what they are and what to take from these middle months that you know haven't meant much the last couple of years but what what really strikes me this year is just how immediate the sense of urgency has to be just because of the fact that, like, everything is riding on this, if you're the cast. Uh, LeBron leaves. You've got Isaiah Thomas, and you've got to make a big decision about whether you're going to pay him or not, which, you know, at this current moment, that is a very interesting question as to who would pay him and what they would pay him, uh, although he's still, you know, still in the beginning stages of just trying to get his legs back after a long time off. You know, you, you've got a lot of things riding on this in terms of, you know, do you submit that pick that you got from uh, from Boston and the Nets, do you use it now and try to make something of it now? Or do you hold on to it, basically assuming that this is such a mess that we really have no clue whether LeBron is coming back. And based on that, we can't mortgage the future or at least a, a big chunk of the future on something like that. So it's just, I think there's just a lot of pressure there. I mean, it... it, it kind of reminds me that the Cavs have not really always handled stuff very well when it comes to a lot of this stuff. You remember the the Kevin Love, LeBron fit in, fit out thing was maybe two years ago. There have always been little things here and there. Obviously, there was stuff kind of bubbling underneath the surface with regards to Kyrie that we didn't even know about um, or didn't pay enough attention to. And so it, it, it's not to say that it disqualifies them in some way. But when you kind of combine what's happening, it's not a good sign. And it's just, again, it's hard to see where the upside comes from here, because even if they do make a trade, like who are they realistically trading for that makes a big enough difference to where all of a sudden you could see them being on even close to level footing with Golden State. I I think anytime you have LeBron, it's a possibility that that he can do something to kind of pull you out of a rut. But this team's defense is just so bad, and even though we've seen the this team flip the switch, I think last year was a great example, and we mentioned this before, that not being true defensively. I mean, they looked unbelievable on offense against pretty much everybody they played in the East, a little less so when Isaiah Thomas got hurt and Boston locked down on them a little bit more defensively. But they still were able to score. They were able to score in the finals, too. But if you can't stop Golden State, it's not going to make a difference. And I I guess I just wonder, you know, some of the names that you've heard that maybe they'd be interested in trading for, whether it's a DeAndre Jordan, I've seen Lou Williams's name come up in connection with them. I mean, you you need first of all, you need a couple guys. Uh, one guy would I don't know. I really don't know at this point. If, assuming you couldn't trade with the Warriors themselves, I don't know if there's a single guy in the league right now that I feel like that person alone would put them on totally level footing with Golden State. And that is crazy to say that, given you know the fact that LeBron is on Cleveland and given that they basically have. And granted, this is with caveats, but you know, a guy that was averaging 30 points a game last season on their team and Kevin Luck, but I I don't know at this point, like they just look so far gone and I know that they'll improve as the time comes, but it's, it's just a mess. And it it does feel for some reason different than previous years. And and maybe it's just because you don't know if Isaiah Thomas is going to get healthy enough or, or not. I mean, he's healthy, but like whether he's going to get back to himself and even if he does, you don't know that that, addresses the biggest problem for them which is the
1: defense. My read on it right now is that assuming as uh, I, it sounds like you do that the players who would really be a sea change especially ones who are uh, on team control for more than 1 year just aren't available, you know. Even the kind of the one year guys like Paul George and Boogie, I don't think those guys are available for the Nets pick or anything like that. They're in, you know, those teams are pretty happy with it and that could be a very real risk for them, you know. Like you, you there is an argument to be made that either Oklahoma City, New Orleans or both would be better off Theoretically, let's say the Cavs did offer the Nets pick for that player. Just say, hey, risk premium, all that kind of stuff. Anyway, those types if those types of things are off the board, what is a little bit striking to me about this is that there is no player that is going to fix what ails them. But there are a couple of guys that I think would help. And that might be available without giving up some sort of premium asset. So George Hill is one of those. I think George Hill, when he's healthy, which is a gigantic if. I mean, we know that from basically (laughs) his entire career. And his ability to play on and off the ball, defend both guard positions, that would be a very nice fit. And, And it would work well against the Warriors. That was part of why the Jazz were very excited about having him against the Warriors last year. We saw how that turned out. I don't know how available Avery Bradley is. Bradley is a guy who could help. And then the other one, and I floated this in a piece for The Athletic this week, is my kind of outlandish game theory idea, but it's not outlandish in terms, it just depends on how teams are seeing it, is if Rich Paul leaned on the Lakers to have them buy out KCP. Because the reason that the Lakers would do that is making Rich Paul happy is a very good thing for them to do right now. It And having KCP for the next 30 games versus not having him doesn't make that big a difference for them. But making Rich Paul happy could. And so that's the logic there, basically the short version. If you want to read the longer version, you can read it my piece. And all three of those guys will not fix what ails the Cavs, but they would help. And so I wonder though, th- all of those require different sacrifices. The Avery probably one, they're going to have to give up good players because Detroit's not doing it willingly. With George Hill, they're probably going to have to give up financial flexibility, maybe even luxury tax bill. And KCP, it's just about the luck, you know, like do does Rich Paul lean? Do the Lakers accede to it? That sort of thing. So- So I think that's where they should go is these kind of smaller incremental moves and then listen on the bigger stuff and hope that somebody overvalues your assets, which is actually pretty much just like taking it to a point. You know, it's just... if It's saying, basically acknowledging that you're not going to be the favorites, that you're not even... You'll have better than a puncher's chance. Obviously, they have LeBron James on their team, but kind of acknowledging that there's only so much they can do realistically.
2: Yeah, I mean, here's my question. I mean, you might have a better sense of this than I do. Even if they... Do like my my thing at this point, like I said, there's definitely not one guy that gets them over the top, even if it were Paul George. I which, you know, Cavs fans would be over the moon if that were the case because Theoretically, he's someone that could come in and really help the defense. I don't. I also am of, am of the opinion that there's not any one guy that would fix their defense at this point. At least not with the lineups that they're playing. Not with Isaiah Thomas playing significant minutes, especially when he's in the game with Kevin Love and what have you. And know, J.R. Smith. You know, Smith, I, you know a, a name I really haven't thrown out there in a while. But I, I, I don't know if it's that I just realized how little of the Cavs I'd watched at the beginning of the season, and you know, started picking them up more recently. He's looked so horrible. Like he barely, if he's not hitting shots at this point, like he barely looks like an NBA player, to be honest. Like he looks so much slower than he did even a year ago. It's just a team that they they need so much fixing that I wonder how many of those sorts of guys could they realistically get? Or would it be a one and done situation where if you go out and get George Hill that, you know, that you don't want to really take on too much more, or, you know, you don't want to give up some of the assets that it would take to get some of these guys, especially someone like Bradley, it would take somebody good or something good to actually get him because the Pistons are trying to make their own run at the playoffs and don't want to give up somebody like that willingly. But that's my thing is that, you know, if you get maybe three useful players, you know, maybe I feel a little bit differently about this team and what it's feeling is, particularly if they do address the defensive side of the ball, because I think Cleveland let's say Isaiah starts playing better you know that he gets out of this funk he's not going to help their defense but you know he could potentially help their offense which you know in years past we were able to look past their defense a little bit more because they were scoring so much Um, when it's not that way and when it's just a horrible defense and you know an average offense that's when you start to get in trouble of maybe not even making it back to the Eastern Conference Finals or winning the East and so if they add some defenders there that can, you know, can switch pretty comfortably, uh, who are good on the ball, who aren't getting lost, you know, and on screens and stuff like that, then I feel a lot better about this sort of team. If you get a George Hill and he's out there and not injured, then I feel a lot better about this team is at least having him in a, an option there for the minutes that Isaiah's not on the court. Or if you decide to maybe start Isaiah, then maybe play him 15 or 20 minutes and have him play the rest. But I just wonder how many of those guys can you realistically get? And I guess to some extent that comes down to what are the Cavs willing to give up and spend in a year where they might really be better off having their assets going forward if LeBron was going to leave. And obviously he's not tipping his hand either way to say that, you know, if he did, that would make a total difference, but he's, he's already been very clear about the fact that he's not going to do that. And why would he? But um, it's, it's, I mean, it's a really, really, like Kobe Alvin's in a tough spot. David Griffin would have been in a tough spot right now too. Uh, But it's, you know, for like a one year proposition and just trying to figure out what this team is going to look like a year from now, uh, even if LeBron is back there in a tough spot, because it's just kind of like, what are you doing to make this team better? And it's constantly going to be a question of what can you do to make this team compete and contend with the warriors. And they are just in such a comfortable spot right now. Like I said, really the only team I feel really good about being able to challenge them right now is Houston. And, uh, You know, Cleveland just hasn't shown anything lately. All we're going off of at this point is the fact that they have LeBron and that, you know, we've seen them kind of turn it on over the last couple of years. But there's nothing about this year specifically that's looked so good about them to the point where you say that's the team that I think is going to get this done.
1: It's also notable that they really haven't used the same personnel. I mean, you talked about J.R. Smith. Just for fun, I hadn't looked this up until you brought it up. And obviously this doesn't take into account that he's been worse defensively. Do you want to guess J.R. Smith's PER this year? um i'd probably put it somewhere around like 11 or 12 if i had to guess honestly 7-2. Oh my god
2: <laughs> so he's half of what an average player should be that's great
1: <laughs> and not like he's been wow. awesome defensively this isn't like tony allen or something like oh. that i mean holy crap i hadn't realized wow. it was that bad i feel like that that's going in the 15 and 60 probably he's, but it, he's,
2: he's been really horrible i mean its it's it, it, stands out to me because I, I watch entire games. I've been doing this recently as I was watching the Rockets, you know, researching my piece for that. Just how many shots in a row you watch somebody like Eric Gordon take without making one from outside. And at this point I feel like and maybe it's just the particular games I've caught, I kind of feel like I've watched like three, four or five games in a row where JR, you know, he's wide open. He's getting the shots he wants, but he's just not hitting any of them. And, you know, other plays where he's just losing the ball and, you know, and I've, you know, God bless J.R., I covered him for years in New York and, you know, he's always one of the bigger, not, I won't necessarily even say complainers as much as like kind of, he always puts his hands out, like, what did I do wrong sort of thing, which I I guess is a complaint, but I think it's fundamentally different than, you know, someone that's shouting at the refs constantly or, you know, begging for calls constantly. I don't think J.R. really falls in that category, but I kind of feel like that's really the only thing he's been good at this year. Is wondering why he got whistled for a foul. Uh, he's, he's been rough, and that's putting it lightly, you know. But there's a lot about that team. Like it, it, it tells you kind of how, on some level, how flimsy that team is. I mean, as if, if, if Jose Calderon really playing big minutes for them didn't say it loudly enough. This team just isn't very deep. All of a sudden, when when you look at certain guys not being able to shoot really jr crowder has been pretty poor this year um and you already knew that you were coming into the season with guys that weren't really shooters and wade and wade's actually had a good season but wade and obviously rose and shumpert hasn't even really been there the whole time but has had a rough go of it this season it's just been a a weird team and i remember zach lowe and i had emailed you know he, he one thing i really respect about zach he very much kind of asks people's opinion opinions that he respects. Even he takes the all star game stuff so seriously with regards to his podcast and kind of writing out almost you know something that you would see in the field of law or something in terms of just like his analysis as the why uh, both sides of everything in terms of why guys should be there, why they shouldn't. And he made a case for Kevin Love that I definitely hadn't made, just saying that he thought he should be in the game just because look at how much of a wasteland, so much of everybody else has been outside of LeBron, and Kevin Love is quietly having a really good year. Now, he made the argument that you can't really hold Kevin Love accountable for what he's been on defense, in part because he never really intended, he never went there to be a center. And it was very clear that he was never going to be a good center there defensively, um, that maybe that compounds how bad the problem is by putting him there, but that that's obviously not something that he would do if it were up to him. But that's just a, a really... The, the team just isn't built very well, you know, and I mean, maybe this is the best they could do given the Kyrie situation, but you know, and s- several people have said this, you didn't absolutely have to trade him. Now stuff might've been bad. I know there was even a report out within the last day or two of the idea that Kyrie threatened the idea of getting surgery, having surgery done, but you know, it, it it could be very interesting to look back on if the Celtics do make the final and you know, assuming that they have to go through Cleveland to do it or beat Cleveland to do it. All of a sudden if we look up and Kyrie makes the finals, LeBron doesn't, and it's predicated on this idea that, you know, Kyrie was kind of the missing link to some extent. We know how important he's been in the past for Cleveland and the idea that Cleveland really doesn't have good point guard play and we know that LeBron can do that, but it also is very, very taxing on a player, I assume, especially of LeBron's age to have to do that, you know, and to have to do it for a whole year where he's kind of carrying the weight of more than one player and um, probably two or three players by having to do that in a year where Isaiah, Isaiah's just looks so bad. I mean, I, I can't imagine he continues to get the same minutes that he does unless it's just out of desperation. Uh, if he continues to play this bad, you know, two, three weeks from now, they, you have to do something because he's just not giving them really anything on either side of the floor.
1: I'll give my current operating idea of what happened in the Kyrie circumstance, and basically the idea is is this: the Cavs, you know, they got the demand and they listened to it, and they were talking to teams. And my guess is that they were expecting they weren't going to get a great offer, and you know, it's kind of like you know, like basically the your willingness to test a player is directly proportional to the quality of the offers that you're receiving. Actually, it's inversely proportional. But that's sort of a circumstance, and so what I think happened was. they didn't necessarily want to trade him, but when Boston came to them with an offer as strong as that one was, I mean, think about how strong of an offer that is. I mean, the Nets pick, everybody expected the Nets weren't going to be a playoff team. We disagreed on where in the non-playoffs they were going to be. Isaiah Thomas, who, yes, he had that injury, and everybody knew that there was something going on there. And Jay Crowder, who has one of, at that point, had one of the best value veteran contracts in the entire league. I mean, he still signed for two more seasons. And so I think what happened was, let's say that the demand was true, but either way, I think it's about the same picture. Is They just went, well, if he's this unhappy, then we're, you know, we're probably going to lose him in two years anyway. It's a lot better to trade him now than to trade him at the deadline or to trade him next year if LeBron leaves or something like that. And this, we're getting a lot of players back. We're getting a lot here. So it made the choice easier for them. And I mean, I was, I still think that the Celtics gave up a lot for Kyrie Irving and they worked, it is working out beautifully for them, which is great. And, And part of what good GMs do is they they trust their bets and they make their bets and it's the same story with the Fultz Tatum thing though there's a whole crap ton going on there too but wow. yeah but that's but I think that's what happened with the Cavs is the idea that they they didn't necessarily want to do it but they got this really strong offer and they're like well you know we might as well. And I can understand why if LeBron was supportive of keeping Kyrie, they'd be frustrated because he knew that Kyrie's special. I mean, and Kyrie is special against the Warriors in particular, because as good as they were defensively, they could never stop him. And I think back yep. to game five of the 2016 finals. The
2: 40-point so, game. Yeah, having LeBron. the 40-point
1: game. Like, being at that game, I was sitting there going, even if Draymond, I mean, granted, you could say maybe they would have never gotten going and all this stuff, but... The Warriors couldn't stop those guys. They there was they were just unstoppable in that game, and Kyrie's undeniability made Cleveland a whole different thing. And also, their defense was better that year, and all that kind of stuff. And as Isaiah is spectacular. I mean, Isaiah was better last regular season than Kyrie was, but that's just not what he is. He's something else. He's something great, but he's something different. So they but they just went well. Fine. This is this is the best we're ever gonna do. We might as well do it. And it's just so happened that Boston's return. on... On the trade has been better than many of us anticipated, and Cleveland's return has been far worse.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, and you're right. I mean, I I will say this, and I will offer this up, kind of sacrificing myself here for anyone who's listening. I, I told my boss the other day, I was like, you know, I, I'd like to think I watch a lot of basketball. I write about stuff that I, you know, I at least think is interesting and hopefully other people find to be smart. I was like, I've had a really bad year in terms of uh, trying to make sense of these trades as they happen, and then, you know, hindsight and looking back you know four or five months later and I think probably a lot of us have I don't know that everyone would admit it I think a lot of people even looking back at the the Bulls trade obviously with Minnesota and you know feeling like Chris Dunn had just had a, a really 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 rough rookie year Zach Levine is coming off a torn ACL the Bulls including you know their own pick and the swap to get Mark which you know I still didn't necessarily find that to be that smart but you know, lo and behold, now the Bulls are, like, too good to really be tanking fully. And, you know, I think both sides of that, both teams came out looking pretty good. You know, the Timberwolves have what they want. The Bulls clearly have at least some future to build around. And, and we really haven't even necessarily seen their full potential yet since Levine is just getting up and going. But between that and uh, the Indiana trade, obviously, where Paul George doesn't become an all-star but Victor Oladipo does and, you know, probably had the stronger case to be one and looks like a legitimate star and franchise player. And and then we get to the trade that we were just talking about with Kyrie and, and Isaiah Thomas. And I'm pretty sure the headline I put on that story was something along the lines of the Cavs threaded the needle with, you know, the Kyrie Irving trade, basically saying that, like, look, they set themselves up pretty well for the future. The pick was it even regardless of how you felt about Isaiah, not everybody loves him as a player. He has a shortcomings for sure. Most people at least could appreciate that the the first round pick there, regardless of how bad you felt the Nets would be, that they're going to be bad enough to where that's a valuable pick. That is valuable, no question. Jay Crowder, like you said, from a value standpoint, is meaningful because of just the contract control, the fact that he plays a position that's really important, particularly against the Warriors and being able to kind of defend and stay with people and and to be able to fight through screens and switch and what have you, and size-wise. And someone that, you know, at least last year was a good shooter. And then, you know, the cherry on top there, and why I said they were threading the needle, not only are they taking care of the future with that trade, but they're, you know, you've got a a good enough player now to entice LeBron to say, like, this is someone I want to play with that can help me score and make it so that I don't have to bring the ball up every single time. This is somebody I can trust um in a playoff series, you know, that I don't have to do it all myself. So really, it kind of looked like a home run from that standpoint. And then on top of all that, um, you know, I remember it being a total letdown with all the Woj and everybody else, where all of a sudden the Cavs look like they're trying to back out or void the deal. And then all that gets thrown into the second round pick, but they got a pretty good haul back, especially once it was known throughout the league that Kyrie wanted out, or at least in the media that he wanted out. But man, like when none of those things work out, all of a sudden, The Nets are, you know, they're going to still be bad, but like the Nets got out to a pretty decent start this year. They definitely look good uh, just to the eye, the eye test. And you look at the fact that Crowder has been really, really bad so far and, you know, kind of prompts you to look at his career and realize that he hasn't really ever been a great shooter. He had a good year last year as a shooter, but he's never been a great shooter and probably has a better reputation from that standpoint than what he actually is as a shooter. And then you get to Isaiah, and I think that the part that so many people overlooked, and I was probably guilty of this as well, is exactly how serious the hip injury was and how long it was going to take him to get back. And for someone that is so you know heavily dependent on being able to kind of contort and twist how much he plays off his quickness in particular – like, that's not an injury that you can just kind of say, he'll be fine. Don't worry about him. He's also not someone that is really, really young. And so, you know, all of a sudden you look at what you got back in that deal and you still have that Nets pick, but you don't even know whether you should use it now to kind of cash in for something or if you hold on to it. But Isaiah just has looked so rough. And I mean, the, the truth is, I could have told you this before if Isaiah's is not playing anywhere near what he was last year, and you combine that with what he is and probably will always be defensively, it, it really wouldn't matter what else you put around this team. Like they need a second score better than the one they have right now. They don't really have, I mean, Dwayne Wade in, in some ways is a lot better as a second score right now than Isaiah Thomas is. And that's just not going to be good enough uh, to win a championship. And so, you know, I could have told you that, but I don't think any of us knew that Isaiah would struggle this much or that he would be out for quite this long. I mean, at the beginning, we didn't even necessarily know that Isaiah was going to miss this much time. Uh, It didn't really come out until after the the trade parameters had kind of been put out there. And that was what prompted the Cavs to even say, look, we want a little bit more protection in this deal, which I'm pretty sure turned out to be that second rounder.
1: The thread that runs through a lot of what you just said there, and they're very fair points. And I, I commend your honesty is that we as analysts, and fans should think about this the same way. We deal in probability rather than certainty. And there, your employer was involved in a very high-profile misunderstanding of this discrepancy, which I will reference implicitly rather than impl- explicitly for a very deliberate <laughs> reason. But that's what this is. <laughs> I, I think that people lose sight of that. You know, Victor Oladipo might be the best example of all of these, where – for sure he is in the higher end of his potential outcomes and so those who are blaming russell westbrook for stunning his development i think are misstating this a little bit because yeah sure this would he would he would look different right now but he's been a much better overall player his three-point shot has looked much better this year like he has improved and young guys do improve that is a part of this Sabonis is in a better situation because he doesn't have to play power forward next to a center who doesn't shoot anymore i think that's really helped him too The way that all of this works, unless it's a situation where it's just so completely egregious, like the Bargnani trade is probably as far as you can go in the other direction, where all you're trying to do as an analyst is say this is good or bad or whatever based on the most likely outcome, a series of outcomes. I talk about the universe of outcomes a lot, like the 100 most likely and something like that. And there is this unspoken, and maybe we just need to start speaking it, acknowledgement that there are many other potential outcomes which lead to this trade looking different. And in the Kyrie case, it was how does he adjust to playing with, at that time, Gordon Hayward, and then he got hurt, and all that kind of stuff. Isaiah's hip, you know, all those sorts of things. And those are all, like, when I'm analyzing something, that all comes into play. That's why, for me, it is probability rather than certainty. But you have to distill that probability into analysis, which looks more like certainty even if that's not what it actually is
2: right yeah that's the challenge that's the biggest challenge i mean because at that point you're trying to kind of explain especially when you're writing (laughs) like stuff you know they all live on the internet for a long enough amount of time for people to go back and find uh what is it cold takes exposed but the idea that you try to rationalize kind of you know what you're seeing or what you're reading or what you're seeing on film to kind of explain why a team will benefit or struggle because of whatever decision they've made. And like you said, Boston is is such an interesting one. I mean, maybe going back even further. So obviously Cleveland's part of it, you know, hasn't panned out exactly how they would have hoped so far with regards to Isaiah, but the Kyrie side of it, I I can, for whatever reason, can almost remember headlines to a T that were written around um, my story I, I want to say the one that when the Kyrie trade demand went public, when we wrote a story about it and I wrote something on it, I think the headline on that story was Kyrie Irving wants to be a number one, but he's better as a sidekick. And you know and so that that obviously was saying very specifically that he it's kind of like a perfect sidekick to LeBron for you know X, y and Z reasons, and that he's not a perfect player to build a whole franchise around because he has defensive shortcomings because he has a very specific sort of offensive game whereas, you know, Boston traditionally has been a team that moves the ball extremely, extremely well under Brad Stevens and that, you know, a team that has a lot of quick hitters and specifically with Isaiah, a lot of handoffs and dribble handoffs and stuff like that. Uh, Kyrie likes to kind of dance with the ball quite a bit. And so how does he fit in with that? How does he fit in with another guy who um you know kind of plays more and has shared the the ball kind of philosophy in, in Gordon Hayward. And Al Horford kind of fits that as well. And so, how does he fit in with with that culture? And and how does he kind of fit in with uh, with that sort of setup? And then having it all kind of come crashing down one game in, and Gordon Hayward not being there. So, I mean, if you want to, this wasn't necessarily me predicting this or projecting this, but I want to say 5:38 model taking Gordon Hayward out of the equation completely after game number one. We did a podcast about this and mentioned on the air that our our uh, probability model, I think, had The Celtics had something like 37 or 38 wins uh, for the season after Gordon Hayward went down. And so, I mean, talking about probabilities, like it's very strange, a lot of the stuff that's happened this season. But so much of it has been people in totally different scenarios than they would have been in before. Chris Dunn is is fascinating. I mean, he's played really well pretty recently. I mean, he's had moments where he's looked great and had 30-point games had moments where he still looks like a rookie to some extent, but he, at least you can tell he's an NBA starter at this point. You've seen enough to know that, but he was in a totally different scenario. Whereas this year, I mean, he took over the starting role a couple weeks into the season and then Fred Horberg said, he's going to be there no matter what, you know, at this point, this is a permanent move. Uh, I'm not going to put Jaron Grant back there as a starter again. And so he says that that is a totally different kind of frame of reference than what, Chris Dunn was dealing with last year, where he's got maybe the most intense coach in the league, um, and he's a backup. He's a rookie. A coach that kind of is very famous, famously kind of said, at least when he's here, here in Chicago, that he didn't really like the idea of playing rookies, and that he had done his research on it, and that no, I, I remember. One of those years, I can't remember who the other rookie was, but I think it was McDermott, and I don't think, it wasn't Meritus, it wasn't going back that far, but basically said, like, no team, there hasn't been an NBA champion to play two rookies in the rotation at the same time in X number of years. and It was, like, going back decades. And so, I mean, he he, any coach that has that research at the ready, that someone that's not looking to play rookies or not give them real meaningful minutes, I think Thibodeau had to change that tune a little bit last year because there's still with a team that's trying to develop talent, um, alongside these young stars. But I mean, Chris Dunn could not be in a more different situation. Like we said, Victor Oladipo could not be in a more different situation. Carmelo Anthony. I mean, that was a situation where I was kind of thinking that he would develop into someone who would be willing to take shots off the catch, as opposed to being a guy that's creating everything. And uh, it took a while to get there, but now he is kind of doing more of that. So I think anytime you're trying to analyze stuff like this, it's tough because there are a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of moving elements. There are coaches that coach totally differently. um, And, you know, you just hope to be right on certain aspects of it. You're not going to nail everything 100% all the time. There have been things I've nailed 100%, but you know, it's been from that standpoint, it's been kind of a humbling year because it, There have been so many things that have been unexpected, which is what makes it fun. But, you know, it's a good reminder, too, of the fact that you don't want to rule things out completely, especially, and I had this conversation with Stan McGundy a couple weeks ago, guys are so young, you know, like we see these guys come into the league one year after they get out of school, in a lot of cases, they're 19 or 20, and you kind of make a snap judgment about them um, after a year or two, thinking that you've kind of seen what what in your mind, what their career arc would look like that, you know, if they haven't really shown any real promising potential that they're probably not going to blossom into a star. And I mean, Jimmy Butler still, you know, I think we forget this sometimes strikes me as probably the guy that kind of changed that tune the quickest, not, I won't say totally out of nowhere, but you know, was playing behind the wall dang and then started to play alongside him a little bit, but kind of happened at a stage in his career where you normally don't expect guys to become stars at that point without ever having shown that they were about to do that. And so, you know, especially with guys that are younger, Chris Dunn, I guess he stayed in school longer than most people, but he's someone that's still pretty young. Oladipo is still someone who's pretty young. And when I was talking to Stan Van Gundy, we were talking about Andre Drummond, who, you know, this year is basically quadrupled his assist uh rate and in terms of you know how many assists per game and he's i think he's 24 years old kawaii is something like 25 or 26 years old at most and so these are guys that are still really young even though they've been in front of us for a while And Kyrie fits that bill as well so you don't want to close the book on guys prematurely but i think that sometimes that does kind of happen um unknowingly i think we do that a lot as analysts too and um so it's been really cool to see like I'm I'm okay with being wrong. <laughs> sure other people are very okay with calling me out as wrong, but it's it's been humbling from that standpoint, but it's also kind of a good reminder and maybe good tools to kind of figure out what to look at in the future so that you can be a little bit more accurate going forward about some of the stuff.
1: I think of being wrong oftentimes as being a very effective way to learn. And for me, the, the example I've used this before is getting LeBron's 2010 decision so wrong. And for me, that made me think about how I predicted free agency decisions entirely differently and led to some of the things I've gotten right since then. And I'm totally okay with it as long as you learn something from it, as long as the process was, you know, kind of right in that sort of a way where it's like, you know, you didn't miss something obvious. It wasn't, it wasn't a circumstance like that. But it is, you know, the, it is worth always remembering and sometimes acknowledging publicly that it's like, you know, that the unpredictability of this, as long as you manage it, is A, a part of what makes this great, and B, can make us look stupid all the time. And I'm good with that because the alternative is way less fun. So (laughs) it's, you know, I, I think that there are some people who relish making other people look bad and I think by and large those people are those who have never been put in the circumstance that we're in. But at the same point and how I know that is because I used to be one of those people until I became one of us. <laughs> and, and and so you just kinda deal with that. And you know, I, I've come to the point where I'm gonna, you know, it's gonna roll off because as long as you know and the ones that kill me are the ones where I was lazy or I was reckless or I was stupid. Those ones I never let go. Like those sorts of things. But the other stuff, you know, it happens sometimes. And generally speaking for me, I don't know why this has been the case. I think it's because I'm fundamentally kind of conservative when it comes to evaluating young guys. Oftentimes, I've been wrong more often than not with a guy being better than I anticipated than worse. And that feels way better, even though it's wrong is wrong and all those sort of things. I'm way happier when Victor Oladipo is way better than I thought he would be than when Mario hazonia is way worse than I hoped he would be. Like, that's just the way it is. For yeah. Me. And so yeah. maybe that is a little bit of self-protection in that sort of a way but i don't know i think it leads to better outcomes
2: yeah i mean i'll put it this way and it, it's interesting when you set the bar at a certain point put it this way especially and i, I guess i got to see it through not a fan's eyes but you know as someone who was a messenger for fans watching phil jackson and the way he did stuff and and this is what's so interesting about how quickly the perception can change and i, I kind of tweeted about this a couple weeks ago Mark Berman from the New York Post put out a story a couple of weeks ago quoting a scout basically saying, you know, uh, like Porzingis is more likely to become uh, Pau Gasol and not really be a star franchise player. And it kind of riled up fans. And, you know, I think I think Mark, not to say that he headlined the story, but I think Mark's editors knew what they were doing by headlining it the way they did. And and granted, it was also like a full quote, basically, so it wasn't like dishonest. But, I mean, I remember back to when Phil drafted this guy, and the conversation early on was that, you know, he was going to be a project, that he was going to take at least two to three years to kind of really be ready to play long minutes, um, more than, you know, 15, 20 minutes a game. And the the projection that he kept using was that, you know, I remember because everybody kept focusing on the guy's weight because he was real thin. And Phil kept saying, you know, Pau Gasol was like that, too. And he grew in his body and put on muscle. And you, you see what he's become. And so that's kind of our hope here is that he can kind of develop some of those same skills. You know, as far as post-work goes, he's very, very tall. He can be an impact player defensively. But that's the hope. And so that's literally what Phil was kind of hoping he would become. And, you know, it's no surprise that that's what Phil would want him to become based on the fact that Phil coached Pal to a really successful career. But, you know, the irony of that, obviously, is that Porzingis plays, you know, miles better than anyone really expected based on what Phil had said. And the truth is, like, none of us in the States had really watched him aside from maybe workout videos and stuff like that, or, you know, the, a straight video here, draft express stuff. We're not scouting this guy. You know, I saw him at summer league. I was immediately impressed at summer league. Quite honestly, you, you kind of have biases that come in. And the idea that, you know, you, a lot of people just think he's a tall skinny guy and he's going to be soft. He's from Europe. He's going to be soft, which is probably a bit prejudiced, uh, first of all. But secondly, I mean, he, he came in as a after summer league and looked like the second best player on the team right away. And so you were able to tell really quickly, like, uh, this guy is not going to take two to three years to really be impactful in some way. Maybe not a star player in two or three years, but he's good. Like, he actually is very good. He's exciting to watch. And this might be someone that you could build a team around at some point. And so based on all that, you know, to see how quickly he developed into something that, you know, star potential, a star, whatever you want to call him, I guess at this point an All-Star, you can call him officially. People were then disappointed to hear the Pau Gasol thing invoked as far as a scout saying that and it being on a headline in a New York tabloid. And it's just amazing because this is the same fan base that some people were booing him the night he was drafted. Best case scenario from what Phil was saying is Pagasol. And then when, when someone presents best case scenario is Gasol, now, it's disappointing to the same group of people because they now feel like his ceiling is much higher than that. And so it's, it's so interesting like the back and forth with this and a year from now, nobody will be able to really think of Victor Oladipo as ever having been anything other than a star. Maybe they'll reference the one year he had with Westbrook, which wasn't great. But the same way that Jimmy Butler, like I don't think people remember Jimmy Butler's thing, this guy that wasn't a star, because you have to go back three, four years now to really think about that. And a time where averaging five points a game. But it's, it's it's fun to watch these guys grow. And like you said, you'd much rather undersell a guy slightly than, than rule somebody out um and then have him just blow up and be great and i kind of feel like it's when you make these really big bombastic statements like that like whatever what was it phil's friend uh charlie rosen said that lebron would you know be an average nba player or something like that like it's when you say stuff like that like first of all it's also probably the dumbest thing that's ever been said by anyone but it's when you say stuff like that where it sticks with people and you, you literally kind of shoot your credibility out the window. As long as you're not doing that and it's not malicious and at least you're, you're putting some thought and analysis into it and rationale as to why. I mean, you're going to be wrong sometimes. I think that is the fun part of it. And, you know, if it makes you feel better, me feel better, there are probably at least a handful of things that you like literally hit nail on the head. You know, I remember having done that with the Knicks when I covered them the first year I was there. Um, they, the story I wrote on media day, my first real story about them was about the age of their roster and basically saying, like, depending on how you calculate their roster in 12-13, this is the oldest roster in the history. They made the biggest jump from, you know, one offseason to the start of the season. They got six years older on average from the the age of the roster, and no team has ever made a jump that big in one offseason. So I basically said, will this team hold up? And I remember, you know, fans who didn't know my work and, you know, didn't know who I was really saying, like, Who is this kid? Like he just wrote this and this is a team built around a twenty seven year old, a twenty-eight year old, and a twenty nine year old. How dare you kind of say that this team's gonna be too old to to really get to the promised land? And then lo and behold, you know, the irony is that Carmelo, Amari, and Tyson all end up getting injured because their backups really weren't available to play, and so those three had to play longer minutes than normal for basically the whole season. And, you know, Mike Woodson didn't hesitate to do that and basically everybody was hurt. Jason Kidd had the, you know, what was it, over-17 finish to the season. Rasheed Wallace retired before the season was over. Kurt Thomas basically retired before the season was over, broke his foot. Uh, Marcus Camby was never really the same, and I don't think he ever played after that season was over. And so, I mean, basically I was pretty much spot on with that. I don't think I saw them being a number-two seed uh, before that season, and I think that caught everybody by surprise. But, you know, those things are memorable, and those things feel pretty good when you – when you put a pretty strong amount of analysis into your story and it it turns out to actually pan out pretty well. So I don't know, you do this long enough and I feel like you take it seriously enough. You're going to hit on some things. You're going to be very wrong about some things, but as long as you don't try to presuppose that, you know, everything and how it's going to work out to a T, then I think it's okay. Like you said
1: and as long as you work to hone to make sure you're doing better every time that that you're not making the same mistake and all all that kind of stuff and i think exactly. that's really what all and that's why you talk to smart people that's why you you know you you go through it in that way and knowing knowing the two of us we could talk forever so usually i ask if there's anything we haven't discussed i know that there are but we've talked we've talked about plenty so i will thank you so much for taking the time oh no problem at all man so it's always good to talk with you Thanks again to Chris Herring for taking the time to come on. You can read him at 538. Lots of great work there. And I mean, his work, of course, but but just I'm I'm impressed with the sports content that they provide all the time. And if you're not, if you're into other things, too, of course, they have great work over there as well. And you can follow him on Twitter at Herring underscore NBA. That's H-E-R-R-I-N-G underscore NBA. As I said at the outset, this was recorded before DeMarcus Cousins' injury, which is part of the reason why this actually came out so early was I was dispirited by that and wanted to kind of channel my energy into something else, and so I just hammered out this podcast before I went to sleep. And I'll probably save my thoughts for that for something with Dunked On because that's a good way to do it. It's a more productive way, so you can listen for that. There, I don't think I'm going to write on this. I still have to figure that out, and it's tough. It's unfortunate. I mean, for any player, but I mean, Demarcus is having such a great year, he's going into free agency. Achilles injuries are one of the ones that still scare me about whether a guy's going to come back whole or everything like that. And you can read Kevin Pelton's piece too. I I just read that for ESPN Insider. It's it's great, and so it's a lot to go through, a lot to process, and it's a part of this business, unfortunately. I actually, I'm not going to say who it is because I have a policy that I do not announce my guest before I actually record the episode just in case something happens, but very excited to actually have the next one on the calendar already. And it's somebody who's never been on the show before. So I'm hoping it goes through, hoping it happens. Very excited about it. So that might mean two in more rapid succession than we're used to, but no guarantees on that. I don't know how my editing schedule is going to be over the next week. So you can look forward to that. The best way to stay in touch with the show is to subscribe, download every episode, and you can also leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast, whatever you're choosing, but it's really great if it's iTunes because that's still just such a big part of our industry. And the other great way that you can support the show is by checking out our sponsors for this episode that is Simple Contacts. You can go to simplecontacts.com slash or you can use the realgm promo code for $30 off your lenses and amazing selection. The vision test is for somebody who has had to wait at the doctor's office probably a dozen times in my life to not have to do that as godsend and they do great work. I've been very impressed dealing with them over the last couple of weeks as I've been you know, testing things out myself. And you should definitely check that out. Also, of course, I didn't mention this, You can word of mouth is a great thing you can do. If you like this show, you can tell other people however you see fit, whether that's physically telling them, using social media, whatever. I really do appreciate it and I am so thankful every time somebody's like, oh, I just found your show, really like it. So, had a couple of those this week. And it's a weekly show and why you want to subscribe is because it comes out a different day. I don't subscribe to a specific schedule because when it's an interview-based show and I don't like holding episodes longer than I have to, I wouldn't want to be tied to that. And now that we are a part of the Podcast One family, which I'm thrilled about, you can also check out all their shows. I mean, it's, it's thrilling to be with them. And we'll see where that relationship goes in terms of it'd be fun if if there can be more, let's call it cross-pollination. I I hope and expect that that will happen at some point in the future. But as with anything, it takes time. And this is, of course, a very busy time for, for me and for us. And so you can also check out all my other work. Dunked On is the big podcast thing. Nate and I do five episodes a week. We'll have a big 15 and 60 on the Eastern Conference coming out Sunday night slash Monday morning. Then... The Twitter NBA show will be back on Saturday for Celtics Warriors, and that will be a sponsored episode, which is exciting. And then I believe it's a week from Saturday we're doing the the ABC games are generally really good for that because it's usually single game on at one time, national TV, and they're often really, really good games and can also, of course, my writing. The Athletic, I've had some things come out recently for both the Athletic SF and the Athletic, I should say Bay Area, and the Athletic Cleveland, I wrote a piece about buyouts for them. Real GM have some stuff that has come out, have some stuff that is coming out. And then Sporting News had a Lakers piece, have a Celtics piece coming out soon as well, which I'm excited about. And then Patreon, patreon.com slash Duncan LaRue, you can subscribe and be a spot. And there are lots of good content I've been doing, or calling it Danny's Story time where I read versions of some of my pieces and just did one of those on Friday. So you can check that out as well. So, and it supports Nate and me in all of the things that we're doing. So you can definitely check all that out. Check out all the great work at Real GM. And, you know, if you can follow me on Twitter at Danny LaRue. Feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny LaRue, NBA at com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I do not promise I will respond, but I will read it. be just have to take it on faith. That's the way it is. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
0: The free COVID vaccine is FDA authorized for kids five and up.
1: Do it for your besties and the resties.
0: It's safe for your child and can help protect their friends. Do it for birthdays. And help protect your family. And game night. When you give your child the vax, you give them the power to learn. Do it for field trips. And campouts To experience. And big hugs. And to be a kid. Get your child vaccinated and give them the power. Paid for with Pennsylvania taxpayer dollars. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY now. At our fully accredited World Class Treatment Center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. call 1888 recovery now that's 1888 recovery